Well, as we continue on with this idea of the Christian story, that's uh, where we've been for the last few weeks and we will be until December. Feel free to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Uh, We're going to be looking at actually parts of chapters 12 through 17 here today. And as we get going, uh, you'll notice if you saw in your bulletin, the title of this is Defining the Relationship. And that's a funny little phrase that I shared here a number of weeks ago. Uh, Some of you are like, that's a funny phrase. What does that mean? Well, it's a phrase really uh, circa late 90s, mid 2000s campus ministry culture where uh, if there were two people where one had a romantic interest in another in on campus there, uh, we would, uh, they would have a conversation called defining the relationship. Uh, it's this moment where you're like, okay, what's really happening here? And, and how's the relationship going to continue? And, and so sometimes these conversations were really awkward, like uh, when uh, a person sat down uh, in my dorm room one time and said, Anthony, I had a vision from God last night that we were to get married, so we should start dating and proceed accordingly. And I went, I did not get that memo. Uh, that, that email did not hit my inbox last night. Um, and so uh, we defined the relationship. It was kind of weird. Um, uh, but then, you know, I've had those types of conversations that go well, like, uh, you know, with uh, my wife, Sarah. And so uh, not all defining the relationship conversations are romantic in nature. Uh, we actually have these all the time, if, if you think about it. We'll, uh, we'll have these things with friends. Hey, what's going on? Uh, between us. We have them parent to child, child to parent. We'll have them vocationally where uh, we'll define the relationship with things like contracts. And so uh, talking about and defining and understanding our relationship is something that we're pretty accustomed to if we stop and think about it. Well, the same is true about God. You know, do you know God defines his relationship with his people as we walk into scripture? Sometimes uh, we don't know that, and we just kind of assume, hey, the relationship between us and God is uh, however I paint it to be. And, and so here's three examples of how I think we can sometimes wrongfully define our relationship with God. And this is, uh, D.A. Carson gives these three categories of really some of the prevailing ideas of how we relate to God. Now, there's a fourth category, which I would put in the category of uh, an atheist, someone who just doesn't believe that there's a God at all. I think that category is really small, but it exists nevertheless. But I think most of us fall into these three categories. First, God is a super soft grandfather. He's just the super soft grandfather. Uh, Carson gives this example when he was in seminary, uh, and there was uh, another man that he was in classes with who uh, was married, and uh, she was faithful to him, but he would go out to the red light district several times a week and be unfaithful to her. And he confronted him and said, hey, this doesn't square with our relationship with God and who he is. And, and this man's response was, uh, you know, God's job is basically to be nice and to forgive us. Uh, and so he will. Uh, and Carson actually just said that that is just such a, a false ideology of our relationship to the God of the universe because there's no sense of God's holiness or his justice. Here's a second category. God's a distant watchmaker. He's a distant watchmaker. This is a a philosophical idea. It's essentially what we call deism, uh, where God is a wonderful designer, and it's like he designed a watch, and he wound it up, and then he just kind of left it on its own to run down over the course of time. And so uh, he is detached and distant from his creation, but but that is also not at all what we see in the Bible, where he uh, providentially rules over all of his creation, and he's not distant. He is very relationally connected with his people. Here's the third category, the mutual back scratcher. 
The mutual back scratcher. I think uh, to put it in language that we've heard a good bit this year, the quid pro quo God, right? Which means this for that. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And, and as Aaron read the sermon that Paul preached uh, there uh, on Mars Hill, uh, he was talking to polytheists there, which believe in many different gods, and they're kind of they're angsty and temperamental gods. Uh, it's this idea that even they believed there in Acts 17 uh, that, that God's kind of, you know, he, he's got this hairpin trigger with regards to his anger. And so uh, if we don't uh, stroke his ego or give him money or uh, do things that he likes, then he's going to zap us uh, or he'll go to war with the other gods, right? And you don't want to be a human when the gods go to war. And so that's polytheism. And, and I would say in the church, uh, this is actually a pretty prevalent idea of how people think we interact with God. It's something that I gave into for many years. Uh, for me, I, I had formulaic prayers that I would pray, and if I didn't pray them uh, the right way, then my family members would get sick. Or if I didn't live right, then as I become an adult, then uh, you know there would be no blessings for me. And this was uh, lived out in my life, in my early uh, walk with Jesus, where I had an enormous, in my mind, moral failure, and I just hit this world of depression where I didn't leave my room for a week uh, because I believed once I crossed that threshold, he would zap me. Um, like he couldn't get to me in my room, right? Um, but, but, you know, but, but that's a, that is a back scratching, scratch my back, I scratch yours, God, where we give into this lie that, um, I need to appease him because he needs me to do that. I think karma is a part of that, right? You know, if there's an imbalance in the universe, the universe, whatever that is, God, it needs to be rebalanced. So uh, I know that's necess- it's kind of different than karma, but that's pre- the prevailing thought of what karma is, at least in popular culture. Here's, here's the problem with this. It assumes that the God of the Bible has needs and we can actually meet them. That's what that assumes. It assumes, uh, but, but here's the reality of what Scripture would tell us, is that he actually does not need to have his ego stroked. He doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our obedience. Rather, what we've seen in, in Genesis 1 to 3 is that we actually need him. That's where the need is. So let me ask you this question. If you were to default to a false view of God, which one would it be? The super soft grandfather, the distant watchmaker, or the mutual backscratcher? Now, there's probably other categories I'm not thinking of, but, but I think it speaks to this reality that we formulate our own understanding of God's relationship to us uh, in the world that is often misguided. I'm going to read this again. Aaron read it once, but Acts 17, 24 to 25, as Paul is preaching, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And Carson would go on to say, so how are we going to have a relationship with a God like that? He's not some soft-hearted grandfather. Moreover, he is not safely distant. He is intensely personal, but he has no needs. That means you and I have nothing to barter with. So what do we do? Well, here's the good news in that statement. Part part of it is, is... is, is if we are in a relationship with him, God loves you for you. Not because it's a codependent relationship. He loves you because simply he placed his love upon you. Isn't that the deepest longing of our hearts? 
to be wanted, not because of what we offer, but, but just to be loved. Here's the other part of that good news, is God does not leave us guessing as to how uh, his people are to relate to him as we look in Scripture. In fact, God writes his own relational agreements, um, uh, which are representative of who he is, that he's near, that he's good, that he's just, that he's gracious, and that he's holy. And so we're continuing on through the Christian story. And so here's the picture we've been using to just give you a visual of where we're going. From left to right, we've talked about creation two weeks ago. We talked about the fall last week. And now we're entering into this third panel, this idea of redemption. And honestly, friends, uh, we're going to be in the third panel until the last week of December. The bulk of the Bible, from essentially Genesis 3 all the way to the end of Revelation, the bulk of it, minus a couple of chapters, is in that panel. Is this unfolding story of redemption. And so uh, we're going to start in Genesis 12. Let me catch you up as to what's happened uh, between Genesis 3 and Genesis 12. Genesis 4, so you've got the fall in Genesis 3. Genesis 4, you've got Cain and Abel, uh, the, the two sons of Adam and Eve. Uh, Cain kills Abel, right? Things are already looking bad. Uh, as we get going with this story. And then chapter 5 comes a chapter that we usually skip because it's a genealogy. But but that thing is an important read because what it does is you see another son of Adam and Eve, Seth, and that continues this thread uh, of a redemptive uh, offspring of Adam and Eve. Then you have chapter 6 to 9. You, you see the world just deteriorating rapidly and you see God bring judgment through the flood and you see a savior figure in Noah continuing that redemptive thread. Chapter 10, you see his three kids, Shem, Ham, and Japheth in a crazy story which I'll let you read on your own. But essentially, Ham is cursed and Canaan comes from Ham and that will come back into play in a couple weeks. Uh, and then Shem receives a blessing. And you have this little intermission in the Tower of Babel. You ever read the Tower of Babel and wonder what on earth is going on there? Um, they build, the group of people say, let's build a tower to the heavens and we'll be like God. And it's the exact same theme that we talked about in Genesis 3, where uh, really what sin is, is us as humankind, little c, thinking we can become big c on our own. Babel is essentially a story of humankind making a name for themselves apart from God. But then at the end of that, you see Shem, again, uh, one of Noah's kids who received the blessing, uh, be the great-great-great-great-grandfather of a guy named Abram. And so that's where we're jumping into the text today in Genesis 12, to 3 So follow along with me. I'm going to read 12, to 3 and I'm going to skip really quickly over to chapter 17. But here's 12, to 3 Now the Lord said to Abram, "'Go from your country and your kindred,' your family is what that means, and your father's house to the land I'll show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. In him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Skip ahead to 17. We'll go 1 to 5. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And then skip down to verse 10. This is my covenant 
which you, keep, you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Let me pray for us as we get going here this morning. Well, Lord, we, we need you to define the relationship this morning. We uh, confess that we come to you with uh, all sorts of different theories and philosophies of who you are and how you relate to us. But Lord, uh, would you give us open hearts to, to correct that and give us eyes to see how being brought into relationship with you uh, really involves us in your mission of redemption. Will you speak in and through me, Holy Spirit? Will you uh, work in and through our hearts? And we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so what we've seen in shadows up to this point is going to become a little more clear. And it's essentially this idea that, that God begins to work his story of redemption through relationships. He works this story of redemption through relationships. And the big term you're going to see throughout Bible of how he ta- the Bible of how he talks about relationships is this term covenants. So here's the quick three out, three-point outline. Uh, we're going to look at the covenant maker. We're going to look at covenant tension. And we're going to look at the covenant keeper. Covenant maker, covenant tension, and covenant keeper. First, let's look at this idea of a covenant maker. So in, in verses 12, or chapter 12 is really the promises that are the bedrock of these covenants. But verse 17, or chapter 17, we begin to see this term covenant show up over and over again. And it's not a term we're used to today. So what is a covenant, first of all? Well, a covenant is similar to a contract. Uh, although here's the difference. In a contract, two parties agree to the terms. In a covenant, you're usually looking at a, a group that is in power uh, with someone who has less power in that relationship. And so uh, the big terms that you can, if you want to geek out later and, and Google this, uh, essentially we see it in the format of what we call a suzerain vassal treaty. A, suzer, a suzerain is like a powerful nation, and a vassal nation is a smaller nation that needs protection. And so there are Hittite treaties when they were a world superpower, Assyrian treaties, Babylonian treaties. And so essentially, uh, the ones with the power make the covenants. And so the ones with power basically uh, go to those who have less power and says, we will secure your borders and protect you from the enemies, uh, but you must be faithful to us. And if you aren't, bad things will happen. All right, that's the that's the thumbnail sketch. I don't know how technical that is, but uh, just to put it uh, in normal terms, that's what that means. And this idea of covenant is key to understanding Scripture because the Bible, the backbone of the Bible, are these ideas of covenants, these covenant relationships. Uh, here are the covenants throughout Scripture that build on each other. Think like a layer cake. Uh, there's a covenant with Adam, Noah, and then we're looking at this idea of a covenant with Abraham right now, and it goes for you got Moses, and you've got David, and then you have the new covenant that we have in Jesus. We're going to probably reference this a good bit as we move forward, but, but here's some of the aspects that a covenant contains. Covenants contain a context, right? Well, first of all, they, they contain representatives. So if you notice, there's a, a, a first name on every one of those covenants. Well, it's because usually a covenant is made with an individual who represents everyone else who's kind of underneath them, or uh, they are representing. So Adam, uh, he represents all of humankind. That's why if you read in the New Testament, you'll see, hey, you're either under or in Adam or in Jesus, because those are our covenant representatives. Uh, And so every covenant has a representative. Again, we'll unpack that as we go. But they all have context as well. 
uh, one false philosophy of how we read our Bibles is people will often say, the Old Testament God is different than the New Testament God. And, and, and that's just not a good read of God's Word. A good read of God's Word is it's, an, it's, a, it's a progressive story that is an acorn in the Old Testament, becomes an oak tree as we move through to the New Testament, and, and it really is following this thread of relationship. It's God's relationship with his people over time. And so when he gives a covenant to Abraham, it's going to look a lot different than when he gives it to David when there's actually kings in the land, right? One author puts it this way, our relationships retain the past even as they undergo change. And so when you have a relationship with somebody for like 20 years, uh, do you ignore the, the past and just say, I'm a totally different person here today, 20 years later? No. You don't jettison that history. It's a part of that relationship, even though you've undergone change. And that's the story of God's relationship with his people. Relationships retain the past, even as they undergo change. Here's the other thing that you see, is that all covenants entail uh, responsibility. There is responsibility uh, of those who have covenants made with them. Have you ever stopped to think about the term responsibility? What's the first part of that word? Response. Response. You see, what we see with Abraham is there is a responsibility, a, a, a responsiveness that is required. All covenants that we see in the Bible have a sovereign initiative. The king initiates, and it has a human response. With Abraham, he says, go and leave your father's land, right? And then he said, hey, and, and circumcise your children. That's part of his covenant responsibility. Now, maybe you're getting lost in the weeds right now, and you're going, oh, okay, I've got to respond to God, and there's these crazy covenants that, that he's making. But, but let's just stop and think for a second. Um, I would argue that we all respond to our relationship to whatever God we serve. Maybe it's not the big G God. Maybe it's the little G God in our lives. But we always are living in response to our relationship with that God. Remember what we said back when we were studying Deuteronomy. Uh, we, we can follow gods other than the one true God, the little G gods, and it can be really anything. We said a good thing that becomes a God thing, an ultimate thing, is a bad thing. And so if your God is your children, or if it's money, or if it's your health, you are constantly living out of your responsive responsibility, your response to that God. Here's the last thing that we see here. Well, let me also say this. We've talked a lot about discipleship and what that looks like. And, and I would say a part of our discipling one another is helping us follow Jesus by, by, our, by following our responsibilities to him as our sovereign who has initiated with us. Here's the last thing we see in Abraham. Every covenant requires an act of faith. That's part of that responsiveness. In fact, that's the primary part. Think about Abraham. Abraham did nothing to enter into this relationship with God. Nothing. God just showed up, right? It wasn't his pedigree, because if you look and, and see what sort of world he came from, it says Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nabor, served other gods. So he didn't come from a God-fearing even uh, family. He came from a family that worshipped other gods. In fact, if you think about Abraham, Abraham comes along 400 years prior to when Moses would actually pen these words here in Genesis. And so he was called to believe in this strange God, and he did. He left his homeland. It was a response of faith. And we know that it's faith because we see Genesis 15, 
He believed in the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. And we see that as our definition of what faith is in Romans 4. It says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so friends, from Abraham we see this idea of faith. That God initiates and he simply responds in faith saying, I believe you are who you say you are and I'm going to respond in trusting you. Here's a second point. Oh, let, me, let me wrap this up. In God's defining the relationship here, we see three things. We see that God is not distant, that he wants relationship. We see that relationship is two-sided. And we see that it's a relationship that's received and not achieved. So let me ask you this. Who or what is defining your relationship with God? And what elements of God's defining the relationship do you find challenging? Here's the second point. There's a covenant tension that we find as we walk through this text. The first is a sovereignty. Sovereignty. This is an idea that we're going to wrestle with throughout Scripture. Uh, We see God choosing Abraham out of all the families of the world to bless him, to make him his people. Michael Williams says this. He says, One of the most prominent ways in which God displays his sovereignty throughout Scripture is by exercising his indispensable right to make choices. It's what it means to be God. That's a challenging thought for us, but but let me give you the, the tension side of that, is that by narrowing his focus on Abraham, God is actually not turning his back on the rest of the world. In fact, did you see in verse 3 God's point in choosing Abraham? He says, In you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's a promise in verse 1 about land, and and you wonder, why did God choose the land of Canaan to to tell Abraham to move to? It wasn't because it was the best real estate, it was high on the cliffs in Southern California. Uh, it, It was essentially the doorway to the ancient world. It was on its way to everywhere else. It was a natural bottleneck between Asia Minor, Asia, and Africa. And so here's here's what I think we can say here about this covenant tension, even as we wrestle with the sovereignty. Is that the goal of God's covenant with Abraham? is that people from every nation, not just Israel, will be redeemed. The Old Testament is a missionary book because Yahweh is a missionary God. This is the Great Commission before we get to Matthew 28. Now, for time's sake, I'll just name the fact that there's a big debate as to what the actual mission of God is. Is it uh, what some would say is, is shalom and human thriving alone? Or is it the Great Commission? Make disciples of all the nations, sharing the gospel, evangelism. And and let me just uh, put it together like this. The church has been called to make disciples as we bear witness to the good news of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit while loving our neighbor. Friends, if we're just doing blitzkrieg evangelism, that is not at all what we see in Scripture. We're always called to love our neighbors, to help the oppressed and the poor, right? But if we just do it uh, without being in the name of Christ, without sharing the gospel, it's, it's wonderful, but it's removed from Christian mission what makes it Christian, and it's the person of Jesus Christ. Let me look at my time here. All right, I'm, I'm scrambling here through to the end. Let me, let, me, let me get to this last point here. We need to look at this idea of a covenant keeper. Remember when I said with covenants, they say if, if, if a person isn't faithful, bad things will happen. 
Well, here's, an, here's a picture of this covenant that God made with Abraham, and, and this is in 15. It's wedged between 12 and 17. God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur and the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid them half over the other, but he didn't cut the birds in half. What on earth is going on? This is weird, right? This is how they made covenants back then. They would cut animals in half, and the two parties would walk through the middle of it as to say, hey, if one of us doesn't keep up our end of the bargain, let what happened to these animals happen to me. Now here's the trippy part. Abraham falls asleep, and he has this wild dream. It says, when the sun has gone down and was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. So here's what happens. Abraham actually never walks with God through these animals cut in half. He falls asleep, and you see uh, this fire pot and flaming torch go through it. And what that's representative of is God going through on Abraham's behalf and saying, if I fail the covenant, let what happens to these animals happen to me. And if you fail it, let what happens to these animals happen to me. Here's what God does. He goes down the alleyway himself. And if you follow this thread of covenant relationship with his people, here's what you're going to learn. Abraham was a mess. His son Isaac was spineless. His son Jacob was a liar. The Israelites grumbled. Joshua didn't complete his job. The book of Judges was a 400-year dumpster fire. In the kings, including David and Solomon, they were intemperate, womanizing, fear-driven murderers, and the nation ignored their kings... And they split anyway. And then you fast forward to the New Testament and you see churches that are lukewarm and running after gods. And if you just look at where we are today, the church is constantly nationalizing and politicizing and dichotomizing God's mission for whatever reason. And we cannot and never have been able to keep the covenant. We've never been able to do it. This picture of making Abraham a great nation, do you know uh, what's in view here is this idea of offspring? There's one offspring in view, and you'll see at the end here of 3.16 that there's one true offspring who is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who kept up his end of the relationship. He's the one who was killed, ironically. You know what that was? When we failed, he went to the cross, and like those animals, were killed on our behalf. And we were given his record of perfect covenant keeper. He's the one who pays for our covenant infidelity. He's the one who gives us unmerited free grace. So friends, as we close, God writes His own relational agreements. We see redemption by relationship with us through His Son, Jesus Christ, who is the true blessing of all the world. And you know what, friends? What this means is not only do we have a relationship with God, can we stand before Him even in our failure, but that He has called us to be a part of the blessing that we see here in Abraham of bringing the message of Jesus Christ to the rest of the world. 
May the Lord give us eyes to see not only our relationship with Him, but the part that we play in introducing others to Him. Let me close this in prayer. Well, Lord, as we move into this idea of redemption, I pray that You will help us, first of all, see that we don't define that relationship with You that you define it for us, but that, Lord, even uh, in being in relationship with you and seeing our failures, you, you give us your perfect record so that we can dare stand in the presence of God and call him friend. Father, if there are those in this room who do not know you is that rela- at the, as that relational covenant-keeping God, I pray that you will draw those hearts to you. And Father, I pray that you'll also help us to see as your church as being an active part of your mission of bringing that redemption through the power of your Holy Spirit to the rest of the world as we love them. And so God, will you be with us as we go? Help us to leave these doors with this renewed sense of purpose saying, you have loved me and sent me this week to be on mission with you. We love you. Thanks for this time. In your name, amen.